Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to another episode of Human Ordinary, true stories about our culture, our relationships, and all those things that make us human. So this one time, I was very young and riding in the car with my dad. It's probably one of my earliest memories, although by this stage, I think I'm only clinging to the memory of having the memory, itself merely a memory of a memory. But from what I do remember is that we were somewhere in the countryside, and I was about four or five years old, and for whatever reason, Dad and I were talking about death. I get the feeling that I knew what being dead meant, because the reason that this memory has stayed with me for so many years is it was the moment when I learned that everyone, my dad, my mum, and even me, would die one day. Up until then, I think I had an understanding that you only died if you got sick, or someone killed you, or you got hurt in a freak roof to trampoline to picket fence suburban accident. But after this car ride, I was aware of inevitable mortality. I'd like to say that it had a profound impact on me and my life. But being the age I was, I probably just went back to throwing my He-Man figures around and nagging Dad for an ice cream. Still, I am recalling that moment now, putting the faded memory through the copier one more time. Death is a fact of life, but some people understand that a whole lot better than others, because for them, it is their life. No matter where you go, people have been and will continue to die. And it's always been someone's job to take care of things after you're gone. This time on Human Ordinary, Mick Cavazzini meets an unlikely undertaker at the top of the world. I was introduced to Walter through a pretty odd connection. A friend of mine met a woman online who was working at the Austrian embassy. One of her stints with the diplomatic service had been in India and Nepal. It was in Kathmandu that she met Walter a baker who accidentally became a funeral director. I was dying to hear the story from him firsthand, but it was no mean feat to organise. First I posted on some forums to try and find a freelancer in Kathmandu who would be able to record the interview in high fidelity. I was blessed when Rojita Adhikari volunteered to travel across town to meet Walter. Then I had to figure out how to call through with a dodgy internet connection on both sides. What, Mick? First, Skype dropped out, so I dialed directly but ran out of credit. Can you hear me? Then Walter's cell phone kept interfering with Rojita's mic. With my what? Yeah, now it's good. Now it's good. You back. Eventually, we were able to have a broken conversation. My own voice recorder died on me, but I prayed that everything was running smoothly on Rojita's end 10,000 kilometres away. Say again? Yeah, okay, Mick. And thank to Rosila. And freezing next to me with your fever and everything, doing this for you. Oh, okay, that's okay. I have a fever and and cold and cough. That's it. (laughs) 
Walter affixed Rojita a lemon honey tea at his garden cafe in one of Kathmandu's satellite districts. It's a quiet street a block away from some other nice restaurants and hotels. There's a private school across the road behind whitewashed walls. You can hear the students in the playground and also the ravens squabbling amongst themselves in the broad leafy trees. Walter's got sharp features and clear blue eyes. He's a sinewy guy with a silver crown of hair and kind of a Joe Pesci vibe out of Goodfellas. Gregarious and entertaining, but snappy when there's stuff to get done. Yeah, yeah, I'm ready, I'm ready. Uh, I'm Walter, I'm from Austria and 66 years old. Young. Walter. It's enough. So what was Walter doing in Kathmandu? He had arrived there in the spirit of the hippie trail, the overland route from Europe to the east that dirtbags from the 60s and 70s took in search of enlightenment, and not infrequently hashish and opium. But by the 1980s, the hippies had given way to trekkers, and there were all sorts of business opportunities for an intrepid 33-year-old. And arrived first in Nepal in 1985, driving, driving over from Austria with a bus, because that time we could sell the cars here and make good money. So it was a lot of adventure. So we, we bought the old buses there. Two friends, me and another friend, each of us had a, a van, made them ready like a camping car. You could sleep there and like that. So it took around three, three weeks, one month to make the car ready and one month to come here. At least one month because, you know, at that time you couldn't drive more than 40 kilometers per day, starting from Pakistan, sometimes 20 kilometers per day. So engine breakdown and middle in the desert you have to change something or whatever, just, just adventure. And we made it finally and then we got the money, we partied a little bit. We spent a lot of money again, <laughs> having good time, and then we uh, flew back, try again to find other cars. So I did this six times. And then, yeah, after six years, then then it became difficult also, and I thought, so I have to do something else. And uh, since I'm a cook and I had worked in restaurant before and other things, so I started a little restaurant in Boda, the religious place for the Buddhists. The Boda, where Walter opened his first cafe, is Kathmandu's central temple or stupa, a huge white dome crowned by a stepped golden tower. From each of the four sides, the painted blue eyes of the Buddha gaze into the distance, all-knowing and serene. I too have been one of those tourists and pilgrims pacing slowly around its paved courtyard, spinning brass prayer wheels with the right hand as you go. Kathmandu's streets bustle with markets and hawkers, and the occasional sacred cow. The wide plazas are overlooked by storybook palaces and temples, rusty red bricks with tiered roofs like stacked umbrellas. Ornate screened windows promise a hidden world, and wooden columns are riddled with intricate carvings of the Hindu gods the fanged Kali wearing a necklace of skulls, or the elephant-headed Ganesha who brings prosperity. In the 80s and 90s, Kathmandu was indeed becoming prosperous as more and more hotels and restaurants and trekking agencies opened up. Walter was captivated by the character of the streets and the optimism of the Nepalis. It was beautiful. You know, I had the feeling everybody had his place to live, that 
the stupid one, the crazy one, the dog, the cat, the cow, whatever it was, who could live in the street, sleep in the street, nobody would bother you. You could just do your life as you like, and everybody could do that. It was very secure also at time, because that time still the king was there. Nobody would steal anything, nobody would do anything, nobody would, you know, just respect you. It was quite nice. The people were friendly, the people were honest. Just it was a good place, that's why I fall in love, to stay here. Walter became a hit on the tourist scene with his comfort food. Versed-style sausages and fried cheese balls washed down with Nepal's Gorka beer. His true passion, though, is bread, and his Vienna bakery has become famous for all the classic loaves and pastries a traveller wants when they're tired of dal and rice. But one evening, as Walter was drinking with a friend, he was made an offer he couldn't refuse. I had a good friend at that time who was working in the German embassy, and then one night we sit together and had a beer, and then he just came back exhausted and said, what happened? And he said, yes, I had to pick up a dead body from somewhere East Nepal or something like that. He had to go himself because the German died. There's no professional uh, company here doing uh, repatriation like that. Somebody had to do it, right? So he had to do it. He, he, he went with his he went with his own car because no car wanted to uh, bring the body from far east Nepal to Kathmandu because you have to imagine at that time the dead bodies were not transferred from here to there. They just were carried on the bamboo with the fa- from the family from home to the uh, cremation place and that was it. And there was no cars where you could transport the bodies. So he had to go with his own car and put the body kind of in, you know, he didn't feel good also, but what to do, no? Can you imagine, you're working in an office and your boss says, one of our citizens has died, but there's no funeral company here because the Nepalis cremate their dead. We need to collect the body and send it home to the person's family. Would you mind taking your car to pick it up and driving six hours with it sitting in the back? It's particularly strange to think that this person's life had been snuffed out so unexpectedly someone in their prime seeking rich new experiences. But as there were now so many tourists coming to Nepal, there was ever more need for someone that could handle the dead and return them to their home country. So and then while having another beer, one or two, then he was saying, why you don't do this job? I said, what, how I can do this job? I don't know nothing about it. No, 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 no. We didn't think more about that. So time passed and then... Another uh, another person from the embassy died. And then again, we of course, we had the beer because we met quite often. And then he said, Walter, come on, you do it. I can, I can guide you kind of just let's do it one time together and then let's do. And I was like, <clears throat> you know, first time with dead body handling is not so easy, not doing every day, but we managed. It was okay. The uh, person who died, it was a normal heart attack, I think, in Kathmandu, it was easy. So I managed, and we sit together in the evening. I say, wow, I did it, you know, really good. And I say, okay, uh, I think I will do it. Next time you tell me, I know already how to do, you tell me I will do. And then I say, yeah, but if I do the business, I have to make a company. And, of course, a company have to have a name, same you don't know even how to play the guitar. 
you will start a body band name and same like I did, you know, we need we need a name about the company, you know. And we were drinking and talking, so which name? No idea. And so and I'm from Austria and I thought what we say in Austria if somebody die, you know. We say, Yeah. He give away his spoon or we say, Oh, he's looking the potatoes from below. So and then I thought uh, spoon giving away undertaker, no. Uh, potato view undertaker, no, doesn't sound good. Then we <laughs> we agreed to root view. Then I thought root view undertaker is the perfect name for a company. So I went home. Root view was created, and I started writing letters to all the embassies that successfully root view announces uh, that we are starting operating. Uh, the company with professional repatriation all over the world like this. If you've ever been to Nepal or even India, you'll get the joke. Every other hotel or restaurant is called the Temple View or Mountain View or Lake View. Why not Root View Funerals? But the embassy staff around town didn't share Walter's sense of humour and suggested it didn't quite have the right sense of gravitas. Walter sheepishly changed the name to Nirvana Funeral Services and opened his doors for business. He bought a dedicated van, and with a bit of ice in the coffin, he was able to transport bodies back to Kathmandu from several hours away. It was one thing to handle someone who'd passed away from a heart attack, but there were more incidents happening all the time on the trekking and climbing circuit. Altitude sickness, rock falls and snowstorms all took their toll, and there really wasn't much in the way of rescue and recovery services at that time. If someone got sick or injured up there, or if they died, they had to be carried for days back down to the nearest road, along dirt tracks winding through corn terraces and past little stone stupas etched with Buddhist prayers, the white peaks of the Himalaya looming like solemn counterpoints to human fragility. I have to tell you this story which really changed my mind towards dead bodies because... I think the second or third cases we had, there were six climbers. They fell down altogether 1,000 meter. Because one fell and they took all the other away, and you can believe how bodies look if they fall 1,000 meter. There was no, there, there was just, you know, a mess, and you couldn't know where's front, where's back, what is up, what is down from the bodies. But at that time, I worked with a, a doctor, a Nepali doctor, who learned embalming from the American, from an American doctor. And with him, we fixed the bodies together, at least the heads, that they were looking like human. I mean, you can believe the heads are flat, you know, the eyes are behind, and I don't know what all, you know, and so... So it was really horrible how to do it, but I had to do my job, and it was the first how to say, what is my ability to, uh, you know, what I can hold, not to faint. But I felt so good, you know. I had the feeling, because in the Buddhist way, they're saying the soul is staying 40 days with the body. And I thought, if I'm above myself and I look down and I cannot recognize myself, because you lost, sadly, you know, to your body which you're not lost yet 
And since we fixed the head together, I thought there's a little chance to find out it is me and it would be happy. I really felt good after that. You know, whatever I can do, I had the feeling you still can do good things for the dead. You know, you give them love, you give them something nice, you, you put them together and I thought, okay, that's a good job. It's something good I can do and I will continue that. Time for a quick break. When we return, Walter faces a challenge beyond all imagining. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Back to the story of Nirvana Funeral Services. Walter the baker and chef quickly gained confidence in his new role as an undertaker. He learned more about embalming from other experts and in turn trained three staff to help him. He fitted out a funeral home, and as Nepal became popular with travellers from around the world, Walter adapted to all the different personal and spiritual needs they came with. We have a little chapel where family can come and say goodbye to their beloved ones. Sometimes they like to come here and fly back with their deceased, and or sometimes stay here on holiday with them, so... It's very nice to have them around and make them happy in the grief moment. Um, for me, religion, there is whatever it is, you know, one power for me, it's, be it uh, Muslim, be it whatever, we have to do with different people, of course, and we do it according to the wish of the family, if they're here. If not, we back them and they will do the ceremony back home, whatever they like to. Sometimes people ask for cremation and we do the cremation according to their wish. Like if they want Buddhist ceremony or if they want Hindu ceremony or they want whatever. Sometimes they say, yeah, if we can get a priest, then of course we get a priest. But this not happened so many times. Most people like to be them uh, home and cremate them there. This all in my, my past I learned, you know, since you live in Asia and then and the days, you know, where everybody was looking for enlightenment, you know, I'm born in this generation, so through the Buddhism and I was living in Boda and through all that I read books, you know, about Tibetan Book of Dead and other things, so which made me understand, you know, maybe dead body needs some love and uh, we can do something good for them also. Walter's trade is seasonal. The May-June spring season is when most climbers and trekkers come to Nepal. There's another peak in October and November after the monsoon clouds have dispersed. Sometimes Walter is asked to deal with climbers who've fallen on the Tibetan side of the mountain border too. And as the neighbouring kingdom of Bhutan has become the next bucket list destination, Walter has recently started a branch of Nirvana funerals there too. 
All of this comes with a little bit of paperwork. Walter has to wait for the police to do an autopsy to make sure nothing is amiss. And there's some bureaucracy for moving the dead between countries. That's on an ordinary day. But the 25th of April 2015 was far from ordinary. Walter was at an open street market with his Nepali wife to buy supplies for the bakery. Just before midday, everything started shuddering. The earth rippled like waves on the seashore. Bricks and concrete started falling from Kathmandu's closely stacked four-storey buildings. Uh, so we were on the market, there was a farmer market, and suddenly the earth had been shaking. People fell down next to me because really hard. I was oh my God, what happened, you know? And then some people said, this hotel broke down, here broke down. And uh, we just tried to go home. I said to my wife, come on, get in the car and try to go home. And luckily the streets were open. I used to choose the big roads, of course, and I could reach home. And luckily my house was okay. Only the compound wall was broken up. At a magnitude of 7.8, the earthquake was just short of the top band on the severity scale. Although the epicentre was about 80 kilometres away near the town of Gorka, much of Kathmandu was reduced to rubble and thousands of people were buried. In the Langtang district, avalanches were triggered that swallowed 250 people in several villages. The quake was so fierce that a small cliff on the way to Mount Everest's summit was cracked to pieces. Nepal hadn't experienced anything like this for 80 years. Immediately, Walter's phone started ringing as every embassy reported nationals that had been killed. And then, of course, the phone call came in. They were bringing the people in, already dead bodies, and then... It was herbal, of course, because uh, many people died. Uh, at that time, the uh, Nepali government did the right decision to say, no, we're not bringing the dead bodies down. We bring first down the Nepali people who are alive and who need treatments. And, of course, it was a lot of pressure on me, too, and on the embassies. Uh, they said, I want my body, I want my body, and this and that, and sometimes family member there, husband, wife, and they're crying, but it was no chance to get a helicopter because they were saying, no, first we fly, of course, they alive in Nepali, which was understandable, but nobody wanted to understand that. You know, so it was not easy, but I managed with my three people. My guys picking up the bodies from here and there, packing and doing. So I always have coffins left, luckily I'm prepared for such incidents. So we could manage, but still a lot of stress because many phone calls. What happened with this one? What happened with that one? Is this gone already? And you know, so it was not easy. I had to sleep also, not only work 24 hours. So I decided not to sleep in the house because I, I have a little van, a old VW van. And so I put my bed there and we were sleeping there because there were so many aftershocks. So luckily, and then I could get up fresh in the morning and go starting my work and go 100,000 phone calls, one million, I don't know, it's like just many bones are there still and under the rebels still many are there, so I don't know how the numbers are, but many foreigners still not found and identified also. Uh, how to survive this is not so easy to be really... All the dead bodies everywhere lying around and bringing in, taking out, and yeah, hurt them. For three weeks, there were hundreds of aftershocks, including another quake rated 7.3. 
In the final toll, 9,000 people were killed by the earthquake and 22,000 injured. More than half a million homes were destroyed, and the tragedy was amplified by the summer monsoons. After so many years in the funeral business, Walter is not easily shaken, but he's still moved by the individuality of each farewell. These days, however, Walter has a bit of competition. There are large international rescue and recovery operators who can undercut Walter's prices, and it's the insurance companies now which decide who gets the job. Walter hates to see the bottom dollar determining what dignity a body is offered in the final stages of its journey. And they always bargaining. They are one of the richest people in the world, institutions, beside the banks, right? And still, when they know there's a way they're cheaper, then they squeeze you as well. Otherwise, the other one gets it. The always question is, why this is that much and why this costs that much? I provide the service, right? I give you a package. If you go and buy the Mercedes, you cannot go, oh, how much is the steering wheel, how much is the engine, and how much is the chassis, and I'm sure the family wants a good service for the deceased. You have to look how the work is done. I will invite them, look how I look, and then you can compare. And then you decide, you want the cheap one, or you want the good one, or the expensive one. As I said before, it's not only packing a body and send them home. It needs a little bit, uh, you know, a little more. It's very sensitive. It has to be done with love. It's not a piece of wood or whatever you said from here and there, especially when family comes and so on. Walter tries not to brood on this too much, and he's got enough to think about with the cafe, the bakery, and now a restaurant as well. This might seem like an unusual or macabre combination of trades, but Walter sees it a different way. <laughs> Many people have two jobs. I cannot live only from that. A uh, few people who are dying. So I bake bread in the morning and if it's needed. And then if there's a call and there's a dead body, I do the other job. So uh, yeah. you don't connect one with the other one. But uh, as I said, important is for me to give a good service. I'm in the service industry. So... Service to their life or service to the dead, it's uh, the both of them, I feel, need a good service. So either they go out from your restaurant and say, we're happy, the good was good. And the other one, until they're packed in the coffin and be sent back home to their family. So everything is a service, make them happy one or the other way. Although still 66 years young, Walter has thought about his own death too. A simple cremation, he says, with his ashes scattered to the sea. That's right, despite living on the doorstep of the Himalaya for 30 years, he's realised he's more of a seaside person. He plans to retire somewhere warm and beachy with his wife. I hope it all works out, Walter. Thanks to Shanae Hubman for introducing us, and especially to Rojita Adhikari for suffering the flu and the Kathmandu traffic to make this recording for me. You can check out her freelance work for The Guardian, the BBC and others at her WordPress site linked from our page. Sam Loy, May Jasper and Cinnamon Nippard gave great feedback to improve this story. Music was courtesy of Lennon Hutton at Epidemic Sound and from Free Music Archive, Mon Plaisir, Studio Noir, Sea of Land, Vortex and original composition by Kent Sutherland. I'm Mick Cavazzini. Thanks for listening.
That was Mick Cavazzini. This was Mick's last story for the current season of Human Ordinary. I'm immensely proud to have been able to present Mick's work to you this year. Mick and I are attracted to similar stories, but I think we have very different instincts when it comes to telling them. And it's because of this that I really, really value Mick's existence. I think we need different views and approaches to challenge our own, to help us question our assumptions, and to give us another perspective we might not have considered. So thanks, Mick. You can check out Mick's other stories from this year. They're episodes 22, 26, and 30, and also Pomegranate Health, which is a podcast he produces about the culture of medicine. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Human Ordinary is produced in Melbourne and Sydney by Mick Cavazzini, Cinnamon Napard, May Jasper, and me, Sam Lloyd. Special thanks to Claire Tonti at Planet Broadcasting and Guy Scott Wilson at Acast. Our artwork is by Fergal Quigley and our theme music is by The Contortionist Handbook. Score a free t-shirt, bonus content and ad-free episodes by subscribing to Human Ordinary at Possible.com. For more info on the show, head to the website or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Anyway, thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.